evening, and I'd like to welcome everyone to our Wednesday evening study. It is the second book of Kings, and I just want to say once again that there's a sense in which this study has been a little surprising. When you think of kings and you think of all of the different kings, and most of them are evil, you're thinking, you know, it's going to be so repetitious. Well, one of the sad things is, is that it seems like each king that came along, just when you thought you'd seen everything, he surprises you and goes even further into sin. The other thing that we have here this evening is, and I've entitled it, The Beginning of Israel's End. Now, when I say Israel, I'm speaking of the northern kingdom, of the divided kingdom. We still have the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is about to come to an end. So I was thinking about literature or books that you may read. There's different ways that authors write books. One of the ways in which they do is they let the reader in on information, background information. But the people in the story, they have no clue. They're just going through life like we go through life. But it's written in such a way that the reader has clues and knows what's going on. There's a sense in which we have that here. The sense of that is, is we find out what God is doing. And this is true. This isn't where this is make-believe. This is absolutely true. And when we think about tonight, we, we, we know God has been setting them up, saying, you've got to turn to me, and if you don't, I'm going to cast you out of the promised land. I'm going to reject you. And we see this coming, and we see this coming, and then when it happens, it is really sad. But it is done in such a way that we, the reader, or in the case of the Old Testament and Jewish readers, they know very well what's going to happen. And it's going to and should cause them to say, let me beware, lest the same thing befall me. So we're going to take a look at the end of the northern kingdom this evening. They are going to go into captivity in 722. Now we already know that the southern kingdom will go into captivity as well uh, in 586. But there's let's not rush it okay one captivity is enough so before we begin i want to just do a little review and we're going to come to the last king of the northern kingdom whose name is hoshea but before that we spent some time in the southern kingdom and this is the way the author writes it he he lets you know what's going on in the southern kingdom around the same time and then all of a sudden he shifts to the northern kingdom with Hosea. Now, we were studying Ahaz, and if, if, you, if you remember, can remember, the one important thing about Ahaz is in Isaiah 7.14, when God gives the sign, and the sign is that a virgin will give birth to a son, it is Ahaz, the king, to whom the sign is initially given. Okay, so remember Ahaz for that. Now, we also know that the ultimate fulfillment is the prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ, whose mother 
was Mary, and she was a virgin and gave birth to the Messiah through the Holy Spirit. Well, then the last thing that we see then in our review is about Ahaz. Now, you remember Ahaz, he thought it was wise, wiser to submit to Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian king, rather than to submit to God. Didn't work out so well. Now, on the one sense, it did work out because Tiglath, or Tig for short, uh, he put resin to death, the king of Aram. And that was one of the ones that was bothering Judah. The other one is Pekah, and we'll talk about him this evening. But then Tiglath turns around and begins to afflict Judah. Of course, he's, he's once world domination, and Israel is in his way. Well, when Ahaz goes to meet with Tiglath, after he's paying him tribute, tribute and he's submitting to him he begins to notice these pagan altars and he says hey let's do that in our church let's modify the altar of God even though it was given to us in instructions from God and that's exactly what he does and he models it after pagan gods he moves the bronze altar which is the very first altar where the the uh, sacrifice is killed uh, to come with blood. Well, he moves that to the side. And now he has this other altar to pagans that's in place. He defaces temple pieces and furniture. And he even remodels the entrance of the king to the temple. Now, why would he do that? Well, if Tiglath, the Assyrian, ever comes, he won't be offended by the Jewishness of the obedience to God. So he remodels that. Well, he dies, and of course he is not buried with the other kings, one of the worst kings that there was. Well, then his son is Hezekiah, and Hezekiah becomes king after him. But we're not talking about Hezekiah tonight. Chapter 17 of 2 Kings, there is a shift to the northern kingdom, to the last king who is Hosea. And chapter 7, the majority of it, is the conclusion and the perspective of why God rejected his people. But before we begin, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us your word. And I thank you, Lord, that we get to know what's going to happen because the scriptures reveal it. But Father, that should give us an edge as believers who have the Holy Spirit, who know your word. We should know what's going to happen if we don't follow you, if we don't take heed to your word, if we love the world more than we love you, and if we rely on others Rather than you, we should know what the consequences will be. Help us not to do that, Lord. Help us to be followers after you, Lord. And thank you for teaching us from Second Kings. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you turn in your Bibles to Second Kings chapter 17. Second Kings chapter 
17, and we'll begin with verse 1. And it says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, southern king, the one we just talked about, Hosea, northern king, the son of Elah, became king over Israel, northern king, in Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and reigned nine years. Now, I just want to mention something here, and it might be best to look at this chart. One of the problems with the book of 2 Kings, not for us or not with us, but one of the interpretive challenges are coinciding all of the dates. One of the difficulties has been that a king, a son, will at times reign with his father. So what do you want to talk about? You want to talk about how long he's been reigning, including with his father? Or do you want to talk about how long he's been reigning, soul reigning without his father? Well, the scriptures uh, give both. And so it shouldn't give us a problem. We've seen this over and over. But just so that in case anybody ever asks you and say, well, the dates in the book of 2 Kings don't corroborate with we, each other. And I think that's an opportunity for say, well, unless you understand it, if you understand it, they do cor corroborate. And what we find is that these, this historical writing, inspired historical writing, is very, very careful to give the years in which these kings reigned. So here we just saw that in the 12th year of Ahaz, the king of the south, Hosea becomes king. Well, if we look at how long Ahaz reigned, it was more than uh, those years, more than 12 years. He co-reigned with his father, Jotham. In fact, that's very interesting because way back in chapter 15, we saw that it said that in the 20th year of Jotham, Hosea became king. And so you're trying to say, well, how can this be? If, if Jotham was still the king, how can it be also the same year as, as Ahaz? That must, be, uh, you know, that must be a contradiction. It's not. It's, it's putting these two together. So if you would just for a second, turn to 2 Kings 15, verse 30. And then we'll be able to move on. I think of the Apostle Paul, who in the book of Philippians writes, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. So we've been doing a little bit of that in Kings. We've been going over the repetition, but it's God who put in the repetition. So I make no apology for going over the repetition. All right, so in 2 Kings... Chapter 15, verse 30, it told us about Hosea before, but it wanted to finish the southern kingdom. And it says, And Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, and struck him and put him to death, and became king in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Well, how can he be both? How can he be a king with both Jotham and Ahaz. Well, there was co-regency. But I also want to mention something else here because this verse tells us what happened to Pekah. 
So if you remember in Isaiah chapter 7, the whole thing behind that was God sent Isaiah to go to Ahaz and said, stop worrying, don't fear. I am not going to let anything happen to Judah. You are the king of Judah. You're not a very good king. You're an evil king. And you will get yours, but not at the destruction of Judah. And there were two kings who were coming against Judah, Rezin and Pekah. Rezin, king of Aram. Pekah, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And God said, don't let these two smoldering firebrands bother you. Well, if it's smoldering, that means the fire is out. They may have been like a fury, but God's putting it out. Well, if you remember, Tiglath puts resin to death. Well, what happened to Pekka, the other smoldering firebrand? Well, we learned that at this point, in this chronology in chapter 17, Hosea, the northern kingdom, kills Pekka, and he becomes king. So the Lord's promise in Isaiah 7 is actually being fulfilled before our eyes, as well as the ultimate fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ and his virgin birth. Verse 2, it says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord, only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. That is an interesting statement. Um, we don't see too many of those additions we see he was worse than the other kings but here he was bad but he but he wasn't as bad as who let's say ahaz and one writes the sins of jeroboam are not mentioned in connection with hosea usually at the end of these evil kings it says and he walked in the way of jeroboam who made the golden calf who started israel down this whole path of idolatry doesn't say that about Hosea. Now, we've got to be careful. Just because it's silent doesn't mean you can absolutely draw a conclusion. But he was a wicked king, but perhaps as a result of the tumultuous times in which he lived, he did not promote the policies of Jeroboam. Maybe. It does say in Scripture here that uh, it, he was not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Okay, so maybe that was the area. Um, according to some Jewish traditions, he allowed the Israelites to go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Well, we don't know that for sure, but that's what tradition says. That, that would be a big step. Why, why didn't Jeroboam allow them to go to Jerusalem where the temple is, where the presence of God is? Because he felt as if they would go there, he would lose people in his kingdom, and their lives would even be in jeopardy. So what does he do? He makes a golden calf to worship. And that started the whole road down idolatry. Well, in verse 3, it's really the beginning of the end. And by the way, let's take a look here at the chart I have of the kings. You see there in the left column, Ahaz. And so uh, you see where he's reigning. And then there, you, you could add in there the time that he reigned with his father, Jotham. And he outlived Pekah, because Pekah was killed by Hosea of the northern kingdom. And then at some point, we're going back to the southern kingdom, and we're going to see Hezekiah, the great king that's mentioned in the book of Kings. 
but we're not there yet. We're looking at the highlighted one, Hosea. This is where we are at. He is the last king of the northern kingdom before they go into captivity. And now it begins. Verse 3. Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hosea became his servant and paid him tribute. Now, who's Shalmaneser? Well, we believe that Shalmaneser is the son of Tiglath. And he's replaced him now, and he is now the king. So he is ruling just like Tiglath, and he wants you to pay him tribute. Or, you know, he's like, he's like the, uh, the Assyrian mafia, you know. I will protect you as long as you pay me. But if you don't pay me, then I will bring uh, wrath upon you. Except they didn't even do that. Tiglath didn't even do that with Ahaz. So Hosea uh, begins to pay tribute to him. Now you remember, they were the northern kingdom was a little upset because the southern king, Ahaz, he's paying tribute to Assyria. They didn't like Syria, Assyria. Well, here he is. He's paying tribute to Assyria. And then in verse 4, but, watch out for those, but the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea, who had sent messengers to So, that's his name, king of Egypt, and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So it's very interesting. He started paying him, and then he said, I'm, I'm going to stop paying him. But I'm going to, instead of trusting in the Lord, I'm going to trust in So, the king of Egypt. And they think that that is a shorter name for his full name, uh, which I didn't write it down, and I'm not going to go by memory. Um, so it's just okay the way it is. All right, so the problem was that So didn't offer any help. Um, and so he was actually, you know, trying to submit to the king of Egypt, and he wasn't offering any help. And Shalmaneser found out, wanted to know why I wasn't getting paid, and he said, all right, that's it. You're going into prison. Well, what happens when the king goes into prison? This is an opportunity now, without its leader, for Shalmaneser to go into the northern kingdom and to take the northern kingdom and to take Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and then to take all the people into exile. It is the beginning of the end. Look at verse 5. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. So he's, he's just taken over the whole land. And he gets to Samaria. And you remember where Samaria was. We've looked at it many, many times. He gets to Samaria. And he couldn't take it right away. It took three years. It just shows how fortified they were. And they were without a king. But they managed. But they couldn't hold him off any more than three years. So look at verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Habor 
on the river of Gozan and in the city of the Medes. And we could really stop right there. We could really pause for a moment of silence. This is sad. This is, uh, if there's anything that Israel looks back to, it's the time that they went into captivity, and here it is. <coughs> I just want to just back up just a little bit, and I want to just talk about Samaria. So um, when I was there in Israel, we saw Samaria, and it was said that maybe some of the ruins were from the time of Ahab, and, and perhaps some of them weren't because we knew that um, other nations came in, captured it, rebuilt over it. But I was just reading today that according to Todd Bolin, uh, who is, I believe, a professor at um, the Master Seminary. Uh, he believes that remains of Omri's palace, expanded by his son Ahab, are visible on the Acropolis of Samaria. Now, uh, I'm not sure if you can read that writing there, but anyway, this is the Acropolis of Samaria. So Samaria was on the top of the hill. That's how they can fortify themselves and the enemy has to come up. By the way, uh, Todd Bolin is very respectable in uh, archaeology and he has a website called BiblePlaces.com. I, I may have mentioned it before. It's a fantastic site. Uh, he has great pictures on it and he has great explanation of all the places of Israel and even of uh, of other places surrounding Israel. So it's very good, it's very reputable. So as we're looking at this, you can, you can see it's high and, and you can see it's three-dimensional. And somewhere in there is Omri's palace, uh, which would also be his son's palace who renovated it and made it bigger. So this is another website and it's called BibleWalks.com. This one has fantastic photographs of the Holy Land and a great explanation. And um, it says here that the remains of his palace, that would be Omri, Ahab's father, and Ahab, remains of his palace are seen on the upper left side of this picture where a number of rooms of his palace are seen. So if you're looking at the top left hand, which would be there, Top left hand, you're looking at a wall there and you're looking at some buildings. And what you can do when you go to these places, you, you know, you're not sure what was Ahab's and what wasn't. You, you look at what the construction of the stones were. You can actually see a difference in the stones. Maybe, maybe the stones were more calculated and more, uh, you know, sharp on the engine as opposed to not so much. But anyway... They believe that that is part of the palace. Now, um, this comes from Bible Walks. It says, the findings in Ahab's palace were exciting. I would say so. The excavators found in the rooms of the administration building on the west, left. So in other words, that little picture we were talking about on the left side was some buildings. One of those buildings was an administrative building. It was the courthouse. It's where Ahab would go to get tags for his chariot. 
All right, so it's a building on the west, the left side of the palace. There were some important findings there dated to the period of Ahab. They found some ostraca there, which are pieces of ceramics with writings. And it is believed that those were the legal documents of that phrase we keep running, and the rest is written in the Chronicles of Kings of Judah. In other words, it wasn't telling us to go to the book of Chronicles. It was saying, in the administrative building, there are these documents, the historical records, like in our courthouse, of, of who's mayor, when, and where. And so in chapter 22, verse 39, that is an example. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house which he made, he didn't find any ivory. And all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Not talking about the book of Chronicles in our Bible, talking about these books. So I just thought that was so interesting because we talk about that every time. Okay, so where are they? Well, there they are. That's the top left. You can see the wall and you can see the structure and you can even see some of the administration building. There we kind of zoom in. That's what you see in Samaria. You, you can go walk in there. In fact, there's a path uh, right there up at the very top. You can see that you walk right by Ahab's palace. You walk by some other tremendous ruins, but they believe they were built at a later time by Romans or any of the other victors. So that, that I just wanted to bring that up. As I, I just found that very interesting. Well, now Samaria is done. It's no longer the capital. It's no longer the capital of Israel in the northern kingdom. God's promised land. It now is under the occupation of the king of Assyria, Shalmaneser. And he carries everybody into captivity. Uh, they are carried away into exile. They're gone. There's no more northern kingdom. Just Judah is left and Benjamin. Just Judah is left, the southern kingdom. But let me remind us, it's going to be short-lived. I mean, yeah, well over 100 years, but in, in as far as history goes, it's going to be short-lived. They are going to go down the same road as the northern kingdom. That's what you can't understand. Okay, they may not have been, you know, <clears throat> perfect, but they saw that God carried out his promise. If you don't follow me, if you worship other gods, I'm taking you out of the promised land. They saw that. You would have thought that would have been enough. Nope. Eventually, they will be taken into captivity as well. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We come now to verse 7. And from verse 7 down to at least verse 23, the author is going to tell us what we already know, but in great detail. What were the reasons that caused God to reject his people and to kick his people out of the land that he gave them? Well, I think we've been reading it in First and Second Kings. We've been seeing it, but this is the summary. If you ever have to teach a devotional, and you, you decide you want to teach a devotional on the northern kingdom going into exile, this is the chapter. Okay, I, I'm, giving, I'm giving it a hint there. So, so Tristan, 
Next time you give devotions, this is this is the scripture right here. Okay, but before we do that, let me just go back to a, a map here. There were two deportations, if you remember. This one we're talking about is the, the final one. It's the second one. But if you remember, we talked about that Tiglath, he did the same thing, but it wasn't a total exile. He took some of them away. That's represented by the purple arrows. And then Shalmaneser, that's represented by the red arrows, okay? I'll zoom in a little bit there. And then you also have the yellow arrows because it says some of them were taken to uh, Habar, but some of them were taken to the cities of the Medes. And so that's where the yellow arrows point to. So we're looking at the red arrows specifically. Where is Habar? Uh, it's up there, what I have circled in the black and um, near Gozen. The Bible uses the N at the end, Gozen, and there's also a river there. So they're gone. And, and way down here, the bottom left, you see Samaria. That's the capital of the northern kingdom. And then you also have Jerusalem. That's the capital of the southern kingdom. So it's very, very close. It's very, very close. But they take all of those from Samaria all the way north to into captivity. So verse 7 then says this. Now this came about because we're going to get the reasons behind it. We already know. But this came about, the captivity, the exile came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. So if you're just going to put it in a nutshell, that's it. Why? Because they sinned. Now you may ask, well, what kind of sin was it? Well, he's going to tell us. But it's not that they sinned against their neighbors. They sinned against the Lord their God. Now, God made a covenant with them. They are his people. Even if they don't want to worship him, they're still his people. But it is still called their God, even though they were worshiping other gods. And this God, Yahweh, brought them up from the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's like, Hello, Israel, remember you were in captivity at one point. You were in Egypt and you were slaves and God came and rescued. And then he gave you the law and said, if you follow me, I will protect you. If you don't follow me, I will not protect you. And the very last phrase of verse 7 says, and they feared, not Yahweh, and they feared other gods. Which means that when they looked at these pagan nations and pagan nations seemed to be successful and prospering, they began to say a terrible, terrible thing that, well, I guess our God, Yahweh, isn't as strong as theirs. Maybe we need to worship their God and appease their God. After all, we're in their land originally, and they feared these gods. They were not following Yahweh, even though over and over and over, God protected them and rescued them and delivered them. But he is going to give us 
from here down to verse 23 and some more, he is going to give us the reasons why God was totally provoked and said, that's enough. And he brought upon them this punishment, and the punishment was, you're out. You're out of the land that I gave you. Now, they, we know God will send them back, and he does. And, of course, there's a lot of other prophecies in regard to Israel. I do not subscribe to the idea that the church has replaced Israel. That's not true. Uh, right now, this is a time of the church, a time of grace, a time of Gentiles, but he's going back to his people. He's going back to that program. Well, anyway, let's kind of walk through this then. So the first reason, of course, and we've already said that, is because Israel sinned against the Lord, their God. And what's interesting is, is I've got a whole bunch of scriptures here tonight, and we're not going to be able to read them all, but at least you have them there for your reference of the many times God said, if you do these things, I'm going to kick you out of the promised land. So it's not like five minutes before this happened said, well, you know what? You made me so mad. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen now. I'm kicking you out. Well, we didn't know. They can never say that. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 63 through 65, it says, it shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. And you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Didn't they believe it? You know, that maybe they thought, you know, he's like the grandfather type who will make a, a, an idle threat, no pun intended, but he will make an idle threat and not keep it because he loves his grandchildren. Well, that's not the case here. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And there you shall serve other gods. You want the other gods? Go get them. Wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. This wasn't your history, Israel. Among those nations you shall find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. It won't be their land. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. So many times we see documentaries or movies about Israel and the difficulties that they have gone through, even as God's people, and, and it does move our heart. But some, if not much, of that has been caused by themselves of turning away from the Lord. And they know it, and they would tell you that. They would tell you that. This captivity does make an impact on them. Now, they still reject Christ, so they haven't come full term, but they, they are changed. They are changed after this captivity. But right now, they're in captivity. Well, I was reading one commentary, and he, he boiled it down to four categories. He said it was, number one, they rebelled secretly. Then they rebelled openly. They resisted God's word, and then they were relentless in doing evil. That describes it pretty good. They were doing it secretly in the sense that 
you know, they didn't want to get caught by God who sees all things. Silly, silly. Uh, then they just didn't care. They rebelled openly. And then they resisted God's word and his warning from the prophets. And finally, they were just relentless, stiff-necked, obstinate in doing evil. So let's pick it up in verse 8. And it says this in verse 8, And walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. And in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. This, this just is so bad. I mean, when you read this, it's so sad and it's so bad. Um, they walked in the customs of the nations that God delivered Israel from defeated them to give them the promised land. So it's not a matter of, well, let's see which God is stronger. There's, there, their gods are no gods, and their gods who are no gods could never compare with God of Israel. And Israel has seen that over and over. So God had driven them out, and now they're worshiping their gods. And then he says, this is, this is just the set. I guess it's one thing to say you're, you're, you're struggling with pagan worship. Then to say, and in the customs of the kings of Israel. Now you're struggling with following the northern kingdom, God's people who are following these pagans. Now this isn't just things that are written down in scripture. This is telling you why God pulled the plug. This is telling you why God was provoked. This is why, this is what, what is telling you that God's wrath Wrath had had enough. We're going to see that in the book of Revelation. We're going to see that in the future. And I, I dare say, it's, it's, this is not as bad a wrath as what they're going to face uh, in the future. Those who are enemies of God, of Christ, and of Israel. Verse 9 says, The sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord, their God. So before we go any further in that verse, they did it secretly. It's, it's as if they didn't want to be seen. Um, now maybe, I don't know, I can't justify how they were thinking they would never be seen by God who is omniscient and omnipresent. But perhaps they were just so callous and thought, well, at least my godly Jewish neighbor can't see it. Well, that goes by the wayside very quickly because it says, Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. So, so much for being secret. So here it's describing the high places. We come across this phrase so often in Kings. What is it? High places are a place that the pagans built altars to their gods. Now, Israel was to demolish them. And when I was over there, we also learned that there, there were times when they would worship Yahweh at those places. Now, not Yahweh and the pagans, the pagan gods, but Yahweh. But the point of it was, was now they're where everybody can see it. And this is pagan worship. We're talking about pagan worship. At one time it was secret, and now they don't care. They don't care anymore. They're doing it openly. 
that was what Ahaz did. Remember Ahaz? He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Not only did they serve pagans and false religion, they were zealous about it. It's almost as if they hardly were ever zealous about worshiping the Lord, unless you're talking about David, a man after God's heart. But they were zealous in worshiping these pagan gods. That was Ahaz, and now they continue to do it. And, of course, uh, we, we see that. Um, even back in Deuteronomy, it says, Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see. <laughs> you know, uh, God knows all things, and this wasn't hard for him to write. He knows the future. He knows what's going to happen. And it's almost as if he looked at what they were going to do, and that's how he wrote these things down. Don't do this, because I know you're going to do it. Don't do this, because I know you're going to do it. Is that the way sometimes when we raise our children when they were very young? Don't touch that. That's hot. You'll get burned. And then there's always those children that we have with those personalities, and we turn to our spouse and go, eventually they're going to touch it. That's what they do. Uh, we, we had some, and we still have some in our family, the next generation that just touch everything. And when they come over to the house, there's sometimes where I say, well, hey, you didn't touch that. Hey, you didn't touch that. Hey, you didn't touch that. Because that's exactly what's going to happen. They're going to touch everything. Well, that is a humorous illustration of a very, very sad thing. He said, don't burn these offerings on these high places and everywhere you can find it. And that's exactly what they did. And then in verses 10 and 11, we're going to find out, well, what, what do you mean? Go into more detail as if we need it, but he gives it to us anyway. They're going to do the rebellious worship of Asherah or the Asherim. Verse 10 says, they set for themselves sacred pillars or poles and Asherim, plural, Asherah, God of Asherah, God Asherah, on every high hill and under every green tree. So when you go over to Israel and you're driving through the countryside, on the one hand, uh, it struck me that it, it so often reminds me of, of Wyoming, some of kind of like the desolate places, kind of like the badlands of, uh, you know, Weston or of South Dakota, you see some of that, and you see the rolling hills or buttes, and, and you're thinking everywhere where there was one of these rolling hills or buttes, that's where they stuck the high places and worshiped these gods. They did it everywhere. Well, it says they did this everywhere. And then verse 11, and there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did which the Lord carried away to exile before them. So the pagan nations were supposed to bow down to Yahweh. Now, of course, they didn't. They were pagans. They were fighting Israel. But there were some that would come to Israel and want to worship Yahweh. And so this would happen. But for those, those nations that didn't, the same thing happened to them. They were carried away into exile. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. This is what Israel is doing. Well, let me just go back here. I happen to have a couple of pictures. We've seen these before. But there is, uh, there is Asherah, 
And, and so they just thought that it'd be best to make her look like a tree for one reason, one of her characteristics was she was the goddess, the female goddess of fertility. But I've often said this reminds you of the character Groot in the Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> so there you go. There's the hairdo and there's the feet. All right, so this is what they did, and, and uh, it, it just, it's just unbelievable that they did this, and they burned the incense. And God had even said that, don't do that. And there's another area in here, too. The other area is, is that they would go to these gods to tell them what to do. You remember um, Ahaz, uh, Ahaz did that? Remember he moved the bronze altar and the bronze altar, again, was the first place you sacrificed. It was outside, wasn't in the Holy of Holies. And it, it reminds us of where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. Well, he moved that. And he says, I'm going to keep it for when I need to inquire. That means when I wanted to know the future. But you don't do that as, as an Israelite. Who do you go to when you want to find out God's will? the prophets of the Old Testament. So we're thinking that he was even going to use the bronze altar as a source of divination. And, and we see some of that even with uh, Asherah. Um, they, they, certain things are said. Um, Deuteronomy 16, you shall not plant for yourself an Asherah of any kind of tree beside the altar of the Lord your God. Um, and then it, it talks about other things about sprinkling blood and, and this, they're now doing it openly now. Verse 12, it said, well, I guess I'm going to finish verse 11. And there they burned the, the incense on all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. Now his people are doing it. Verse 12, they served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. So we've said this numerous times. All sin is sin. All sin is sin against the Lord. But the one sin that's being dealt with here in the book of Kings is their idolatry. And there's going to be two reasons I don't know that we'll get through all of this tonight, but there's going to be two reasons why that is so bad. Why is idolatry so bad? I mean, murder isn't all that cool either. Well, first of all, idolatry is bad because you're leaving the God who you made a covenant with. And just think of yourself, think of yourself as having a friend, and then all of a sudden there's some sort of problem between you and your friend, and your friend doesn't want anything to do with you anymore, and so they have other friends. I mean... That would bother us, right? Well, that bothered the Lord. He was a jealous God. He loved these people. And he said, I'm not going to allow you to do that. And besides, there were, there were no gods anyway. I'm not going to allow you to do something so foolish. And then what we're going to see in here is when they worshiped false gods, the supposed false gods would make them do hideous things. So when God says, I don't want you to follow these other gods, one of the reasons is, I don't want you to sacrifice your children, to, to give them to the fire, to serve the God Melech. He 
asks you to sacrifice your children. We can see the influence of Satan in the Old Testament, can we not? I mean, these there were no gods, but you could see the influence of Satan in this idolatry. So the two reasons why idolatry is so bad is one, because God is a jealous God. He loves his people, but his people don't always love him. And secondly, because the hideous things that man's imagination, and that's what it is, man's imagination with the worship of these false gods is horrible, horrible. So we move to verse 12 then. It says, and they served idols concerning which the Lord had said, you shall not do this thing. And over and over he has said that. In fact, way back in Exodus when the Ten Commandments were given, you shall not worship their gods nor serve them nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. That way, no one is tempted to worship false gods who don't exist, who will make you do horrible and heinous crimes. You see that in the book of Exodus. We see that in the book of Deuteronomy over and over. And then, of course, the book of Deuteronomy says, and if you do, I'm taking you out of the land that I gave you. This is interesting, too, uh, because if you remember, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted. And one of the temptations was Satan said, if you bow down and worship me. And, of course, the Lord did not sin. The Lord was perfect without sin. Therefore, he became our perfect sacrifice. What did he say to Satan? Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so we see this even from the lips of Jesus uh, that he was following the law and carrying it out to the nth degree. Quickly, I'm just going to go through these before we pick them up and then I'll make some observations. Verse 13, he says, you did not heed the prophets. I'm not going to read the verse. Verse 14, he says, you remain stiff-necked. He uses the word stiff-necked. Well, what does it mean to be stiff-necked? It's the internal stubborn refusal to respond or submit. Now, it comes out outwardly, but it starts inwardly. And some of the verses that explain them said they were obstinate. Obstinate. Just not going to do it. And they were unwilling to change. That's what stiff-necked is. An internal refusal. And then you're obstinate. And then there's a, a, an unwillingness to change. That's what he calls them. They rejected the Lord's statutes in verse 15. Verse 16, they made molten images. That's the calf that Jeroboam made. Verse 17, they made their children pass through the fire. They sacrificed their children. And I don't know if this is true or not. I, I asked some people when I was over in Israel when we were looking at this area, the Valley of Hinnom, and John MacArthur had said that it's very possible that when they were doing this, there were drums that were being beaten to cover over the sound of the crying and screaming children. So I asked them about that. No one really knew anything about that. But I said, well, you just need to read your MacArthur study Bible more. But anyway, um, 
that, that's a possibility, but it just gives us an idea of how terrible this is, the heinous, the heinous and horrible things that these false gods make you do. And that's with all sin. Sin doesn't help you. Sin doesn't make you feel good or maybe for a short time until it comes and it's like gravel in your throat. Um, it, it never promises you life. It always brings death. Finally, verses 18 and 19, it says, the Lord removed them from his sight. I don't even want to look at you anymore. Um, so, I, you know, I've never said that about any of my kids. I've never had a parent say that to me. But I have said that about a dog a time or two. Don't even look at me. Get over there, you know. So, uh, but, and that's what the Lord does. The Lord says, I, I, I'm going to remove you from my sight. So the Lord rejects Israel. And I'm going to stop there because he's going to talk about the way of uh, Jeroboam. Well, this, with the few minutes that I have left, uh, let me make some observations. Because first of all, we've made numerous observations before about the idolatry of Israel. And we look at ourselves and we say, well, we're not, you know, we're not worshiping totem poles or we're not getting Asherah poles up there. Um, and I get that. But we often make the application, but we can, we can have I other idols in our lives, anything that takes our hearts and time and labor away from the Lord. Not that you can't enjoy things, but that indeed idolatry is a moving away from the Lord and worshiping something else. And we can do that. But we've talked about that. What I want to talk about is Israel, one of their main downfalls is they didn't take heed to the prophets. They didn't take heed to the word of God. And sadly, that is something that can and does happen to believers. They hear the word, maybe even go to church and hear the word, and then they leave and they just oblivious to what it is. Um, to what they've heard. Every time we hear the word of God, it ought to be a sobering thing. In fact, the, the Bible says we ought to tremble at his word because we are to obey it. Now, I understand that's not what salvation is. Salvation isn't I have to obey the Lord a certain amount of degree and then my good will outweigh the bad. There are no works that save. There are no works that remove sin. The only thing that removes sin is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ we died on the cross in our place for our sin. Faith alone in Christ alone. But as a believer, Jesus said, if you love me, what? And I'd love to do a survey. I'd love to have a survey and hand this out to people and even some churches. Well, you fill in the blank. If, if, if Jesus said, if you love me, what? Uh, go to church. Give money? Um, I don't know. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It reminds me at times of children that said, you know, Dad, I love you. I want to do something for you really special. And we as fathers say, okay, go and clean your room. No, Dad, you misunderstood me. I want to do something very special. Well, believe me, cleaning your room would be very special. Uh, and so the Lord says, look, if you love me, you will love my word. 
You will love the things that it says about my attributes. You will love what it says about instruction for you how to live a godly life. You will love all of that and you will want to do that. And that's the one area that I think it really will affect us. The other area, and I'm going to close with this, the other area would be do not love the world. So we're seeing in chapter 17 of Second Kings, and we made it down to about verse 12 tonight, they go into these pagan lands and they're looking. Oh, that's cool. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Oh, you see how they're worshiping their God? And of course, again, I'll, I'll repeat it. We just talked about Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. He goes to Damascus. He sees the altar to pagan gods. He says, that's it. We're going to remodel the temple there at Jerusalem with these pagan gods. And you're like, this is impossible. How can that happen? And yet at the same time, if we look at believers in the world, sometimes we fall in love with the world, aspects of the world. In 1 John chapter 2, you know the, the, the very strong and powerful words. It says, do not. By the way, it's a command. And so you translate it, you must not do this. It's not like, well, try not to. You must not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here we go, you want a description? The lust of the flesh, the things that the flesh craves. The lust of the eyes, what the eye sees. Could be materialism, could be immorality, that lust of the flesh. Or the boastful pride of life, could be success getting to the top of the rung of the ladder. Someone once said, preached a sermon and said, you may climb to the top of the ladder only to find out that that ladder's on the wrong building. All of these things are not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. That's our heart, loving the Lord, loving his word, loving obeying him, and loving doing his will. That is what we ought to find as the ultimate joy of the believer, right aside of the fact that he saved us and he gave us salvation. Well, I'm going to close right there, and we'll pick this up uh, next week, and we'll, we'll continue on with that. But let's just close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, it's not as though we've never heard these things before, but, but it is as though we need to hear these things again. And we need to hear them many times, even as the Apostle Paul said to the Philippians, to write the same things again to you is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Let us take heed to your word and these safeguards in your word, and we'll give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So at this point, I, I will open it up if there's any comments or thoughts about any of that. Um, I, I, 